Hi, folks. Thanks for joining us online. Um, take two, right? Folks in the room. Uh, glad that you're here with us. Uh, we've been discussing things like Calvinism and um, adding to the Bible and uh, the rapture, tribulation. Uh, of, of the questions preachers get, I got one on creation last week. So of the questions preachers get, that pretty much covers like 99% of it, right? So if you're going to ask questions next week, you have to, you have to deviate from the norms because we've, we've covered all our normal basis. Let me pray for us. I'd like to do that and then we'll get started. God, thank you for our time that we can gather together. I thank you for those that have gathered in the room with us, uh, those that are watching us live right now uh, on one of our streaming platforms or are watching this on our website uh, later in the week. We're grateful for that uh, technology to be able to uh, do this together. Uh, I pray, God, as we think about doctrines of the Bible tonight, that your word would encourage us, that we would be encouraged in it to know that this is the authoritative, sufficient, necessary, clear, and errant word of God, uh, that we can believe it because you have said it, and uh, that your word is for us, and it tells us things that uh, are certain truth about you and about how we can be uh, in right relationship with you. So we thank you, God, for your word um, and pray that you would instruct us tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So um, our last week, we talked about some history. And as I explained, for those that have not uh, done, connect, uh, done equip stuff with us before, I, I tend to start with history because I think it's helpful uh, in knowing where we where we've come from, and so we really, since our subject is the scripture itself, we talked about uh, where we got the scripture, that um, that where we got the Old Testament scripture, where we got the New Testament scripture, how it was compiled, why we should uh, trust it, um, and then we talked a little bit about um, translation and the, the 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 hard work, and I truly believe hardest thing in all of Christianity is the work of translation. I certainly am grateful for those men and women who labor in that task, and it is certainly a laborious task. But the, the church needs the Bible, and we need the Bible in our language, the language that we speak and understand. And we sort of talked about modern translations and how that those things come about. We move on from history today now to talk about uh, doctrine. And I'm, I'm really condensing. So I've, I've got an hour today uh, to really get through uh, what would take me five weeks in my Bible doctrine class when I do the doctrine of Scripture. So if this becomes really um, uh, interesting for you and you want to know more about this, uh, you could do one of two things. In our Equip Center, we sell a white book, uh, the thickest book that's out there, called Bible Doctrines. It's written by a guy named Wayne Grudem. And uh, you could buy that book and you could read about each one of these doctrines has its own chapter. Um, well, maybe not in that book. It may be that some of them are combined. Um, but each one has at least its own section in that book that, that really addresses each one of these topics tonight. Uh, or if you wait long enough, uh, Lord willing, uh, we will be back at some point in uh, doing uh, smaller equipped classes. And uh, I circle back through uh, these doctrines, these big doctrines, and one of them being a whole semester on the doctrine of the Bible. And I'll deal with these extensively, uh, again, each one of these. I'm going to get to spend about 10 minutes on something I usually spend an hour on, right? So uh, I'm, I'm going to talk quickly, uh, but I'm also just really going to skim the surface uh, on each one of these, and hopefully it helps you. And here, here's why I wanted to do this. Next week, we're going to pick up uh, really in some of the more practical um, uh, things, uh, we're going to start talking about uh, uh, basic principles of hermeneutics. So basic principles you should apply every time you pick up your Bible uh, before going into a little more detail in the weeks to follow with how do you read things like narrative? How do you read things like poetry? How do we read um, apocalypse. So our question about, you know, revelation, how do we read the apocalypse? So I, I take narrative or I take, um, hermeneutical principles that I've learned and I apply it to books like revelation. And it, it leads me to an understanding of the end times, um, that, that I've, that I've really kind of settled on in my life. And so, um, we're going to get more practical in the, in the coming weeks, but I wanted to spend this 
uh, session talking about doctrine because if we are going to learn how to read and study and hear the Bible, we need to all be convinced of what the Bible actually is and what it is not. And in each one of these sections today, I'm going to briefly talk about the doctrine that helps us know certain things about the Bible, but I'm also going to talk about what that doctrine is not saying. Um, really, one of the reasons I wanted to do this, um, this uh, equip study on Wednesday nights uh, this semester is I, I see a lot of people, not necessarily people in our church, although I know it happens within our church, but just as, as I watch people talk about the Bible, um, I watch people get the Bible wrong. And it's not just like I'm, I'm able to sit in a, you know, a position of authority and say, oh, you shouldn't use the Bible like that. But I mean, people just get the Bible wrong, not in third order ways that we joyfully disagree with one another and walk away friends, but just like really bad ways that we read the Bible. And some of that comes from a bad view of what the Bible actually is. So we're going to talk doctrine because talking doctrine helps us to know what the Bible is and also what the Bible isn't. And when we, can have, when we can have correct categories for what the Bible is and what the Bible isn't, then it's going to help us when we move into um, subsequent weeks talking about how we uh, approach the Bible in our Bible reading, how we approach the Bible, various genres of the Bible in our uh, study, and then how do we actually take get meaning from that, which will be where we end when we get to uh, late October and November, all right? So there are four historic Protestant doctrines of the Bible. These uh, are uh, Bible doctrines that were worked out early in the Protestant Reformation. Some of them um, have uh, historical roots that predate that. I would say they all have historical roots that predate that in that they are all attested to in the scriptures themselves. Um, but some of them have uh, early church um, meaning first uh, 300 years of the church's existence. So they have early church roots. Uh, we see deviations from these uh, within uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, through the uh, 1500s when we had the Protestant Reformation. And one of the big questions of the Protestant Reformation is, where, what are we going to lay as the foundation for belief? And what they ended on was the foundation for belief is going to be Scripture alone, right? We are going to rely on the Scripture only uh, as, as our foundation. So either the Scripture says something and we are going to affirm that it says that and believe it, or the Scripture does not affirm something and so then we're not going to hold it uh, as something the church should also affirm uh, because the Scriptures don't don't affirm it. And so out of that, as, as guys like uh, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and other uh, reformers wrote uh, and preached and taught in seminaries and, and the things that we saw established during that time, really four doctrines of the, of the scripture, doctrines of the Bible emerged. And I want to talk about those four. And then we're going to talk about a fifth that uh, has really, that, that really was assumed and then because of the um, Enlightenment and uh, uh, modern Protestant liberalism stopped being assumed in the early 1900s, and so now we've kind of added a fifth, which we'll talk about at the end. So here are the, here are the four. I'm, I'm not going to talk about this order, but these are the easiest way to memorize them. You take the word SCAN, S-C-A-N, and make it an acronym, right? So it's sufficiency, clarity, uh, authority, and necessity. So the sufficiency, the clarity, the authority, and the necessity of Scripture. I'm gonna, that, that's the easy way to remember them because it, it makes a word. So the word scan. I'm going to talk about them in a little bit of a different order uh, because I think they kind of build on one another, and, and that's, that's the way that I like to teach it. So let's talk about authority first. Um, this, um, these definitions all actually come out of that book that I recommended in the Equip Center uh, from Wayne Grudem. I want to recommend another book. I'm going to recommend multiple books over this. I'm going to recommend multiple books over this semester. 
uh, to you. And I like to recommend as much as possible, really accessible, readable, easy books. The shorter the book, the better, because the shorter the book, the more likely you are to actually read it. Uh, This is a book called Taking God and His Word uh, from Kevin DeYoung. I'm actually going to quote from this book uh, under each one of these sections today. But he addresses these four uh, issues. Uh, uh, Kevin DeYoung is one of the smartest guys in uh, the Protestant evangelical world, but when he, and when he preaches, he preaches, I've heard him preach multiple times in person at pastor's conferences, and he preaches at this really lofty level. But when he writes, he's one of the clearest, easiest guys to read when he writes. He pastored for a very long time in a college town, and I think that's why. I think he's just really used to explaining it to young people. Uh, and so taking God uh, at his word, if you search this on Amazon, I think it costs like $9.75. It is way worth $9.75. So uh, I want to recommend that book uh, to you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use his, how he describes these doctrines versus how Wayne Grudem describes it in his uh, theology book. And we'll see kind of how one takes an academic approach and one kind of takes uh, a little more of a, of a pastoral approach. But here's Wayne Grudem's definition of the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture means that all the words of Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any words of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Uh, It says a lot there, right? Um, That all of Scripture is God's word, and it is God's word in such a way that if we don't believe it or don't do it, then we are directly not believing God are not doing what God wants us to do. Writing about the authority of Scripture here in this book, Kevin DeYoung says, uh, the last word always goes to the Word of God. We must never allow the teachings of science, of human experience, or of church councils to take precedent over Scripture. So he gets a little more practical, and he addresses some of the outside sources, outside authoritative sources that the world looks to and that, by the way, we can look to. He's not saying we don't ever look to these things, um, but he's saying we can't take those and put them at the same level of Scripture and say, well, this says this, Scripture says this, so I'm going to believe this because those things are equal. Scripture always holds the trump card when it comes to um, when it comes to authority, that if the Bible says something, clearly says something is true, then it is true. And to disbelieve that is to disbelieve God. And if the Bible says that we are supposed to do something and we choose not to do it, then we are not doing what God himself has told us to do. In 2 Timothy 3, we read a very familiar verse that says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, everything in between is Scripture. And all of it is something that is telling us either something to believe or something to do, which, by the way, is why I end my sermons the way that I do. If you've been going to this church for any amount of time at all, uh, you know we end all sermons here with a so what. It's uh, either a clear statement or a question that's driving home one of two points, that this scripture wants me to believe something or this scripture wants me to do something. Right? That, that's, that's the application of all Scripture, that, that a passage is intended for me to hide something in my heart or for me to do something with my hands and feet. Occasionally, it's both, but most of the time, it's one or the other. And the doctrine of the authority of Scripture means that we, because the Bible says it, we are supposed to believe it or we are supposed to do it. To disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Um, now, what does the authority of Scripture not mean? It does not mean that there are no other sources of authority that we have access to in our world, right? God has established our world in such a way that we can believe other sources of authority, right? So, um, Newton's laws, right, of physics, that an object in motion remains in motion, an object at rest remains at rest unless acted on an outside force. That is 
a law of nature. Now, God established that law of nature. Newton's just the one that wrote it in a really catchy phrase that I memorized when I was in seventh grade and still know today, right? But it's true, and we can appeal to it as true, and here's why. Because there's nothing in Scripture that contradicts that. That Scripture doesn't speak about objects in motion or objects in rest. And because Scripture doesn't speak upon that, I don't have to look to Scripture and ask about how objects in motion or objects in rest act because the Bible doesn't address that subject. And so I can appeal to another authority as authoritative. So the Bible is not the only authority. But it is the primary authority on everything that the Bible addresses. So if the Bible addresses a subject, particularly as it relates to faith and practice, which consumes 99% of what the Bible talks about, what I believe and what I do, right? Um, then the Bible is the authority on that. We can't take any other religious document, whether it is a religious Christian document uh, or any other world religion document. We can't take any other position of man, position of humanity, position of science. We can't take any of that and say, this trumps Scripture, this is equal to Scripture, but the authority of Scripture does not mean that those other sources aren't authoritative about which they speak, as long as what they're speaking about is not in contradiction to Scripture. Also, Scripture is not authoritative if it is misused. Now, let me explain to you what I mean here. Scripture is authoritative in insofar as we understand its right meaning and we know why it was written and we have the same, but scripture has always been, let me just say it like this, scripture has always meant what it's meant, right? So what the original author wrote to the original recipients and what he intended to mean and what they read it to mean is what it means. Does it mean something else today? It has always meant what it means, and it only has one meaning. What, the, what the, the author meant for it to mean is what it means because he was the one inspired by the Holy Spirit. So if I take, and this is called proof texting, but if I take a, or eisegesis, right? If I take a verse of Scripture out of its context, away from how that, that person wrote it, away from the context in which he wrote it, away from the original uh, recipients of it, and I use that as a battering ram against somebody, if I use that as a baton to hit somebody over the head with and say, well, you got to believe this because look, this is in the Bible, even though that's not what it meant at all, that verse it's not that that verse ceases to be authoritative, but the way that you used it is not authoritative. There, there's no weight of God behind a verse outside of the way that that verse was intended to be read, which is why a class like this is really important. It's why we're going to talk about how do we get as best as we can to the original meaning of the text. It's known as the historical grammatical method. I'm going to spend a whole week talking, our whole session talking about that. How do we get to the historical true meaning that was intended by the author? Because when we take it out of that context, it loses its authority. Because now it's not scripture. Now it's just a jumbling of words that we're using for our own ends, right? So scripture is authoritative. There is no other authority that rises to the level of scripture. If scripture speaks on something, that is the final word. Uh, but we must seek the original meaning to know what that authoritative scripture is saying to us. Number two, sufficiency. The sufficiency of scripture means that scripture, contain, scripture contains all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. And that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. In, the, in this book that I recommended to you, uh, DeYoung writes, the scriptures, this is about sufficiency. He writes, the scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. We don't need any new revelation from heaven. That what God has said is all that God needs to have said. And that, by the way, is true now, and it has always been true. So what God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, and what when I was preaching that, I told you it was known as the proto-gospel, the first gospel, right? 
what God told Adam and Eve there about that a descendant from Eve would crush the serpent's head, that's all they needed to believe because that's all that God had revealed, right? And then as you go, we get to this covenant of God with Noah that we're seeing on Sunday mornings. And so now we're going to believe that and we're going to, in a couple of weeks, get to the covenant between God and Abraham. And so what God had revealed to that point is what you needed to have believed. And then we get to Moses and scripture starts to be uh, passed down and, and on and, and on until we get the closing of the canon, which we uh, talked about that last week. Now, this is, um, this is the, this is the e- Protestant evangelical position on the sufficiency of scripture. It is also the Reformed position on on sufficiency of Scripture, meaning this was the position that was held about sufficiency during uh, the Reformation. We've then seen a splintering away within Protestant liberalism, uh, particularly in the West, in the United States, and in Europe, to where we really now have three understandings of sufficiency. You have the, the Roman Catholic understanding of sufficiency, uh, which would disagree with this uh, because the, the church would say, no, the Bible isn't all that you need. The Bible doesn't tell you everything that you need. You also need the church to tell you certain things. So you need, church, you need the Bible and church dogma. You have uh, Protestant liberalism in the, in the West, particularly in America and Europe, which will tell you, no, the Bible isn't all that you need because you also have human reasoning and human understanding that needs to go alongside of it. What we would say is, no, the scripture is sufficient alone, that the Bible contains everything God intends to tell us, that it is wholly sufficient to instruct us in how we can come to know him, how we can trust in him, and how we can obey him. So then God has not spoken any additional words that we are required to believe or obey. So anybody that comes and says, well, I have a word from the Lord, right? I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to people. I believe all of us, all Christians, listen in some way or another, probably in our own unique way that the Holy Spirit speaks to us. But all of us listen to the Holy Spirit, right? But I don't believe that people get a new, I, don't, I believe this is, this, is, um, this is, for us to understand Scripture rightly, this is where we need to land, is that we, we don't get to speak up in church today and say, this is a word from God, and that word from God is on par with Scripture, which is, by the way, a, a, one of the places that we uh, would separate from uh, the, the extreme charismatic church in the United States, where people would, where people, particularly pastors, prophets, others within that community would, would claim that their words are on equal ground with Scripture, that their churches need something else from them. You don't need anything else. The Bible tells you everything God wants you to know. doesn't mean that he tells you everything, but God has told us everything in Scripture that he wants us to know. It's not exhaustive, though. Have you ever wanted to know something about um, a, a, a scriptural topic. You know, beforehand we were talking about doctrine of the doctrines of grace. We were talking about uh, the doctrine of end time. There are things on that that I would really love a little bit more explanation on, and we didn't get it in scripture. And you know what? If we don't get it in scripture, then we don't need it. And there's nothing that we can exalt to the level of Scripture and say, well, this is, this is kind of Scripture, you know, this is the companion to it, which is where a lot of cults and, and uh, alternative forms of, uh, and I'm going to use this term lightly, alternative forms of Christian religion, because at some point it ceases to be Christianity, have gone wrong. They've exalted something else, like the Book of Mormon. We've exalted something else to being equal to Scripture. So while the Bible doesn't tell us everything we may want to know, the Bible tells us everything we need to know. It contains all the words that God wants us to know, and it contains all the words of God that we need to know as it relates to how we can know him, how we can trust him, and how we can obey him. Number three, clarity. 
The clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that, it, that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. Uh, DeYoung writes, Clarity, the saving message of Jesus Christ, is plainly taught in the Scriptures and can be understood by all who have ears to hear it. We don't need an official, I like this word, magistrate. Magisterium, right? We don't need an official pastor, right, to tell us what the Bible means. You don't need me to tell you what the Bible means. You don't need this church to tell you what the Bible means. If you will come to the Scripture with with an open heart, seeking God's help, God will tell you what it means. You don't need an advanced degree. As someone that holds one advanced degree and is currently seeking another. So understand, I put value in that. But I will also say, you don't need that to know what the Bible means. Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So the simple can be made wise by the Scripture. But how can the simple be made wise by the Scripture? It requires them to ask for eyes and ears that they do not possess. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14, we read, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So we take that truth and we just recognize the inverse, right? Paul's saying that the natural person, the worldly person, the person that's trying to seek God and find God on their own will never be able to do so because the things of God can't be understood because of our sin nature, because of our depravity. We're blinded to the truth of God because of the work of the enemy in our lives. We're blinded to the truth of God. But God is able, we take the inverse of that and believe it to also be true. Those things are spiritually discerned. And so because they're spiritually discerned, God makes a way for us to hear it. So we call this our spiritual eyes or spiritual ears, that the Holy Spirit makes us able to do that. Now, who can do it? Well, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, right? Uh, If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And so we just trust that those that that seek after God, um, trusting that God will reveal himself to them, not of their own uh, ingenuity, not of their own creativity, not of their own wisdom, but in his, in his word, will find truth there. So the simple can understand scripture because it is not the simple understanding it themselves. It is God, the Holy Spirit of God, opening the eyes, opening their ears, opening their minds so that they can understand it. Now, here's what clarity doesn't mean. Clarity doesn't mean that all of the Bible is equally understandable. Have you ever read something in Scripture and just thought, man, I have no idea what that's trying to tell me? Or... Have you ever begun to think about some of the deeper things, particularly as it relates to how, what does the whole Bible have to say on a subject? And, and we, we start taking what, what Old Testament authors said, what New Testament authors said, and we try to develop a system, right? This is known as systematic theology. We try to develop some type of system in which we can place doctrines, which is really what we're doing tonight as it relates to the doctrine of the Bible. And, and we get to some things that are just hard. So before we got started, we were talking about the free agency of man and the sovereignty of God and how those two things seem to be in contradiction to one another, but they're not because the Bible teaches both of those things clearly. And so these are two parallel lines that find their meeting place in God, right? And so I can understand that those things are true because God opens my eyes to the fact that they are true, but I need to, but we all need to admit that those are hard teachings, that those are hard truths that that we grow into as we grow into our knowledge and understanding of the scripture and as we grow up in Christ, we understand some of those things more clearly. Some things, you know, you could hand a Bible to uh, any person and they, they, could, they could understand some of it because some of it is easier to understand. Some of it requires more work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which speaks to this point. It means we're also not there. Just because you've read the Bible once doesn't mean you're there. 
right? Doesn't mean you got it all down. The second time you read it, you're, you're going to run across things and say, I don't even remember that being there. I, I didn't understand what that meant when I read it the first time, but I understand it now because I know this over here. So we're always growing. We're always learning. Um, it's always becoming more and more clear uh, to us. This clarity of Scripture also does not mean that there won't be disagreement. Now, let's talk about disagreement. Let's take this in, in light of what we have, I've already talked about. And what I, what I talked about earlier is true. The Bible means what it means. What the text means is what the text means. And that text has one meaning. It was written by that person and inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, to write that text, in most cases, to a specific group of people with one meaning. And that's what it means, right? But I may read it seeking to have spiritual eyes, seeking to have spiritual ears, seeking to have a sanctified mind. And you may read it, seeking to have spiritual eyes, seeking to have spiritual ears with a sanctified mind. And we may come to varying understandings of the text. Now, on the things that the Bible is most clear on, we would call these first order doctrines, things that make a person a Christian, there, there shouldn't be disagreement, right? But as we, as we narrow down that funnel, right, or we, let's say we're going to start at the top really narrow, and as we broaden our way down on things that the Bible is, speaks about less and less on, we, we end up having more and more grace with one another because there, there's room to maneuver. So we had a question about end times, and I prefaced it by saying that, right? We have to have room to maneuver, and not everybody's going to agree uh, on this. That doesn't mean that there's not right and wrong, <laughs> Just because we're going, to have a lot of, we're going to have a lot of leeway with one another, and just because I'm going to be able to say, hey, look, you can have your opinion and I can have mine, um, doesn't mean that one of us isn't ultimately going to be right. Because one of us is. Because here, listen, the Bible only means one thing. We just need to, in practice, out of unity, out of the love for unity of one another and the gospel centrality that we have in our church, recognize that not everything needs to be a five-alarm fire. Not every doctrine needs to be this big thing where like, well, if you disagree with me on this, then buddy, you're not, a, you're not a Christian, which by the way, is the primary way that people um, approach the scriptures on social media, all right? Like if you disagree with me on this thing, then it's obvious. I watched someone write this about godly pastors this week online. Like their response was, if you hold this to be true, then it is obvious you're not regenerate and the Holy Spirit's not within you. And listen, folks, it was a third tier, like way down the list thing. Like, holy cow, is that really where we are right now? Like we are, we are denying the regenerate nature of Christians because we have this minor disagreement over something. So we want to be really careful uh, uh, about that. But while also affirming, the Bible has, means what it means. So out of unity, we recognize that we may disagree over less important things, um, but one of us is ultimately going to be right, which is why I ended what I, what I was saying about uh, the end times by saying I'm not going to be mad or disappointed if I'm wrong. Because I very well may be wrong, and uh, so may be one of you. Um, so there, there will be disagreement, but ultimately because one or all of us, possibly, we're wrong on minor things, not on, not on the major things. What this also doesn't mean, and I want to be clear about this, because this is, this is so prevalent in Western Christianity. Um, American, uh, you know, the... Uh, the American ideal of individualism has so uh, affected the church that what we see people now, particularly we teach on something like the clarity of Scripture, and you hear me say that you don't need me, right? You don't need the church. You, you need you, you and your Bible. So, so people will walk away from this thing, all right, me and my Bible are enough. All I need is me and my Bible. I don't need you, preacher. I don't need you, small group leader. I don't need you, Christian friend. All I need is me and my Bible and the Holy Spirit, and I got this, and I'm going to get to all truth. The problem with that is you can't hold that position very long before you get to the New Testament, which clearly teaches that you need other people. 
that God has given as gifts to the church, those in Ephesians 4, those who serve as um, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teachers, the pastors, right? That, that God has placed in our lives intentionally those who are going to shepherd us. God has gifted people in the church uh, with uh, gifts like teaching and discernment. God, God, is, God is placing these people in our lives for this purpose. So, yes, you can read the scripture on your own and need to, but it is also true that the church serves an important part. And so for a Christian to just say, I don't need the church because I got my Bible and me and my Bible and the Holy Spirit are enough, is to deny what the Bible says to be true about the church. What we are saying is that you are able to get there on, you're able to get to truth on your own. But that truth ought to lead you to community within uh, the church. This also, we want to be clear, clarity of Scripture does not mean that we get to make statements like, well, this is what it means for me, and you can't tell me that my truth is wrong. We do need to have grace and kindness and generosity towards one another, particularly as it relates to uh, third-tier biblical issues. Um, but listen, folks, it can't, we can't both be right. And, um, you know, the... The, the worst question that can ever be asked in small groups, and we tell our small group leaders this year, don't ever ask this question, right? Worst question that can ever be asked in a small group is, what does this mean to you? No. What does this mean? Now, we may end up with different understandings of what this means, and we could talk about those and try to work this out and go to other places in the Scripture and really work it out, but it can't, it can't be, one thing can't be true for me and another thing be true for you. That is so postmodern, right? That's our world right now is this, is, is variable truth, right? And truth is relative. And well, your truth and my truth, and I don't get to contradict your truth. Um, it, it, one of the authors of scripture, guy who hung out with Jesus, right? Peter writes about scripture in second Peter chapter one. And he says, know, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So we don't get to claim that my interpretation is right, but your interpretation could also be right. And they're both equal. One's right, one's wrong. Uh, we need to really do our best over and over. If you've never changed your position on, on, a, on a biblical topic before, you've probably not thought about it enough. I mean, really, like you, you should continue to grow. You should have things, not, not on things that are like salvation by grace through faith and Jesus Christ alone, not as, you know, belief in one God and three persons, not on first tier issues, but on other biblical things. You ought to be able to look back 10, 15, 20 years, depends on how long you've been a Christian, maybe just a few, but you ought to be able to look back and say, wait, I used to think that, but I don't think that anymore. I, I now think this, like I've grown in this because the Holy Spirit's teaching you more and more and more. Number four, necessity. The necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will. Here in this book, uh, DeYoung writes, general revelation is not enough to save us. We cannot know God savingly by means of personal experience and human reason. We need God's word to tell us how to live, who Christ is, and how to be saved. So scripture is necessary for salvation. Scripture is necessary for uh, each part of salvation, that w each part of salvation that we play a role in, right? So it is necessary for us to come to faith in Christ. You cannot come to faith in Christ unless someone has proclaimed the scripture to you. It is necessary for your sanctification, for you to put off sin and put on Christ. You have to know what it means to put off sin. What is sin? You have to know what it means to put on Christ and what, so what is righteousness? We have to have scripture to know those things. And for us to know definitively what God wants us to do or not to do, we have to have scripture for. To, it's speaking of knowing the gospel, Paul writes this in Romans 10. He said, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But he didn't leave it there. He paints a picture of a process for us for how someone will come to call upon the name of the Lord. He, he writes, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are feet of those who preach the good news. 
But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will do so because someone has presented the truth of scripture to them. A couple of times a year, I get asked this question. Do we really believe they don't ask it like this, but do we really believe in the exclusivity of the gospel? That's really what they're asking. But here, they always, we always phrase this as some kind of hypothetical. It's this hypothetical. Do you, do you really believe that this guy living out in an unreached people group, because we talk a lot about unreached people groups here. We're going to talk about unreached people groups on Sunday uh, as a part of Praise and Go Sunday. And so people ask, do you really believe that guy that you know, grew up in this unreached people group, nobody's ever presented the gospel to him, they don't have a Bible in their language, there's no missionaries going to them. If he wanted to know something about God, he wouldn't even know where to go find a church. So there's like no church available to him. Do you really believe that that guy um, dies and goes to hell? Yes, I, I do. Because that's what the Bible says. How will they believe? How will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone goes and preaches? And what is it that we preach? We preach the word of God. The gospel alone saves. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is the true message of scripture. And so unless, we, unless that gets proclaimed to us, then there is no hope of salvation. There's no opportunity to believe in Christ unto salvation because Scripture was not uh, proclaimed to us. It doesn't mean that they have to be able to read. Remember, most Christians throughout history have not been able to read. doesn't mean they have to read. doesn't even have to mean they have to own a Bible. But somebody at some point had to have told them something about the Bible, that the Bible teaches us about who God is and what Jesus has done so that we can be restored to him and that they come to faith and repentance in him or they will not be saved. The Bible's necessary for that, but it's also necessary for us to continue in that salvation and our sanctification. When Jesus was being tempted in the uh, wilderness by Satan, remember there's three temptations, uh, and the first one being he was really hungry. He had, he'd been fasting for uh, 40 days, and he hadn't eaten anything, and Satan was like, look, you got all power, man. Just turn that rock into bread, and he quotes the Old Testament, right? And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is, Jesus is not saying that we can go on living without bread. We actually need bread. We need food. Our bodies will waste away if we don't have it. But there's that spiritual side of our body. That's what Jesus was addressing here. And here's what Jesus recognizes. Without, without the word of God, we'll waste away. We, we can't just, we're not going to figure Christianity out on our own. Uh, even post-salvation. We need the word of God to tell us what does it mean to be like Jesus and then to know certain, uh, to have certain knowledge of God's will. So people, one of the books that, other books that Kevin DeYoung wrote, it's actually shorter than this, um, was about knowing God's uh, will. It's called Just Do Something. It's one of my favorite little books. I give it to like college-age students and late high schoolers, people that are really trying to figure out life uh, because we all want this like, really clear, like, this is what God wants me to do. And this book, you know, Just Do Something, uh, is really interesting because the, uh, the whole premise of the book is as long as you do what the Bible tells you to do, you're not going to go wrong. <laughs> like, as long as you just do what the Bible is telling you to do in life, it doesn't matter what college you pick because it doesn't matter which career path you pick because you're going to do right, right? You're just, you're, you're going to do what the Bible wants you to do and you're going to do right by it. Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, because that's the only way we can know God's will. You know, sometimes we think we are hearing from God and it was really, we shouldn't have eaten that Mexican food really late at night, you know, and it's just keeping us up, giving us bad dreams. Um, I got a couple of people that I'm friends with on Facebook that I've just known, you know, for, for life. And they're, they may be watching this right now. Sorry, I'm talking about you. I'm not going to name you though. But they're always coming on Facebook talking about these dreams that they've had and these things that God is speaking to them. And I'm like, man, I just don't know. Uh, here, here's what I know. I know I can know for certain what God has said because I can go to his scripture. I'm really not sure I'm going to trust my dreams because my dreams are sometimes weird, right? And so are yours probably. And, and my thoughts sometimes are my thoughts. I may think they're the Holy Spirit's thoughts, but they're, they're really not. But I know I can go to the Bible because I know the Bible is going to speak truth to me. So what does this not mean? What does um, the necessity of scripture not mean? It doesn't mean that we need the Bible to know God exists. 
right? The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 tells us. So anybody who looks up to heaven can know there is a God that exists. And it also means that we, we don't have to have scripture to know some things about God's character, even his moral law. This is basically Paul's entire premise of Romans 1. Like Romans is this outline, this, this long walk through the gospel process, right? And Romans 1 begins with this understanding that everybody's guilty. Like if, you, if, if it bothered you that I said that guy in the unreached people group went to hell, just read Romans 1, right? Romans 1 can, will convince you that guy's guilty. And, and here's why that guy's guilty, because God revealed himself to that guy, and that guy sought his own way. That guy still chose to sin. God revealed the moral law to him in his heart, and he still chose to disobey it, just like all of us did, right? And that's the whole premise of Paul's introduction to that treatise on salvation is that all of us are guilty. So while we may be able to look up in the heavens and devise that God exists, while we may be able to look even within, uh, through the depravity of our own heart and recognize that things like murder is wrong and, and stealing is wrong and disobeying your parents is wrong and adultery is wrong, we may be able to recognize all of that. We still choose our own path. And so the Bible is necessary to point us to the true path of God. Now, those are the four, right? Uh, authority, sufficiency, necessity, clarity. Those are the four primary um, Protestant positions, doctrines of the Bible of the last 500 years. But then something happened. There was something that, that was assumed during the uh, Reformation, that was assumed in the Protestant church, uh, assumed during the Great Awakening, um, uh, the, the American Great Awakening. And then we had the Enlightenment. And we ended up with um, um, classical liberalism, modern liberalism into postmodern, uh, postmodernism of uh, the latter 20th century. And where they began to challenge was not on those four positions. Where they began to challenge was on what's known as inerrancy. That is, and this is the question, is all of the Bible true? Or not? Is, is, can we just say that some of the Bible is true? Or should we, should we affirm that all of the Bible from beginning to end is true? So the inerrancy of Scripture, this is one that evangelical Protestantism over the last hundred years or a little more now uh, have been talking about and really have, have worked to define because it, it runs parallel to these others. Because to pull it out is to pull the teeth out of the others, which is, which is what classical liberalism did. It pulled inerrancy out. And so it took the teeth out of authority and it took the teeth out of necessity because now we're, now they're going to want to say, well, that part of the Bible isn't authoritative or that part of the Bible isn't necessary. That all in the, under the disguise of, well, some of the Bible is true and some of the Bible isn't. So the inerrancy of scripture means that scripture is the original scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So the Bible, as it was written, as it was penned by the person that the Holy Spirit was inspiring to write it, does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. That is a really fancy way of saying the whole Bible is true. It's all true. All Scripture is God's Word. The, the real debate in doctrinal terms is over the difference between infallible and inerrant. So what uh, more liberal denominations have landed on, and when I say have landed on, I'm talking about in the 20th century, uh, where they have progressed to now is even far beyond, for many of them, far beyond infallible. But where they landed in the 20th century was the Bible's not inerrant, it's infallible, meaning that some of it is true. The parts that deal with faith is true. The parts that deal with practice of faith is true. But all of the rest of it, it particularly as it relates to history and miracles and some of that, is open for debate. That's where um, uh, the mainline Protestant denominations ended in the middle part of the 1900s. Where they've progressed to now is fully abandoning the Bible almost completely, which, by the way, they were warned. 
This is what evangelical theologians were saying in the mid-1900s. They were saying, you're going to end up in a place where you don't want to go. And those guys were saying, oh, no, we're not. And they didn't because they're all dead now. But their children and grandchildren did, all right? And it found its way into our denomination, in the Southern Baptist Convention in the mid-1900s, in, uh, in the 60s and 70s. There was a theological drift towards liberalism uh, in our Southern Baptist seminaries, which was then finding its way into our pulpits because they were training, uh, training pastors. And there was what was known as the conservative resurgence. And we went through in the late 80s and early 90s a small split. We didn't split as some denominations did. Presbyterian church uh, in America split, and it was, it was a big split, almost 50-50. The Methodist church right now, the Methodist church in, in uh, the United Methodist Church in the United States, or, or, or worldwide, is going through a split right now. While it won't be 50-50 in the United States, because it won't, it will be very close to 50-50 worldwide. Um, the split within Southern Baptist life was more like 90-10, all right, with 90% staying in the Southern Baptist Convention, affirming the inerrancy of Scripture, which is why we um, added some things to the Baptist faith and message uh, in the year 2000. But here's what, here's what we were saying. All of the Scripture is God's Word. The Bible doesn't contain God's words, meaning some of the Bible is God's Word and some of it isn't. We planted our flag and set our feet firmly on this declaration. Every word of the Bible is God's word. And if every word of the Bible is God's word, then every word of the Bible is true because God, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie. So everything that God told us is truth. It's not that some is true and some is false. It is all true. It doesn't just contain God's words. It is God's word. And that's, that's what you still hear out of uh, some today who would deny the inerrancy of Scripture, they would say the Bible contains God's words, but then they get to pick and choose which parts of the Bible is God's word and which part isn't. We're going to say, nope, it's all is, like it or not. <laughs> it's, it's all God's word because God doesn't lie. If God lied about some things, even small things, if God lies about small things, then he can't be trusted in the big things. So if God was lying about something that's inconsequential in Scripture um, or less consequential in Scripture. And that was just a tale of the time and they made it up and it's not really true. Um, then why in the world would we believe what it has to say about bigger things? Also, if God can lie about small things, then so can I, right? I can lie to you about little stuff um, because eh, it's just a little thing. God lied about the little things, but he didn't, right? God, every word of Scripture is truth. Here's what inerrancy doesn't mean, though, because sometimes we want to take inerrancy of Scripture, which is a doctrine we, again, firmly have our feet planted in, but we want to take it too far. There's two areas that I see the church occasionally do this. Number one is, is that we want, to, we want to pick apart words of Scripture and insist on some kind of meaning. So let me, let me show you a place. I think it's a fun place to go and to look at it. If you've got a Bible, I know I've been quoting Scripture just for the sake of time, but if you've got a Bible, I've still got eight minutes, turn to the book of Judges. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a story that's in the book of Judges, um, and, then, and then we're going we're gonna to pick some, some parts out of it, right? So uh, Judges 15, that's where we're in Judges 15 is one of the accounts, one of the stories of the life of Samson, one of the most famous judges uh, also the one that you really don't want to be modeling your life after because this guy was kind of a train wreck. And if there's anything that the life of Samson teaches us is that God uses train wrecks, all right? And God does here um, in, in some pretty incredible ways. We like the story of Samson because it's kind of a superhero story. I mean, this is this big burly guy, you know, and, and, and uh, Judges 15 is one of those places. So in Judges 15, there's two things that Samson does. These are my two favorite things that he does. Um, both, both in this chapter. The first is he comes back um, to, his, um, uh, to his home and finds out that they've given his wife to his best friend. And um, that makes Samson really mad, understandably. And he goes out and catches, this is in verse 4, he goes out and catches 300 foxes. You know how hard it is to catch 300 foxes? I mean, can you imagine for a second? Then he ties their tails together two by two and puts a torch on their tails and lights the torch 
And the foxes run all throughout the Philistine, uh, can, or Philistine village and their crops and everything and burn it all to the ground. That's great, right? So remember that, 300 foxes. Then those, the Philistines get mad. Can you imagine? They got mad because he burned the whole place up. And so they come to the people of Judah and they're like, well, we're going to take it out on y'all because y'all are harboring Samson. And so 3,000, this is verse 11, 3,000 men, right, come to, um, come to Samson, some 3,000 Israelites come to Samson and they're like, hey man, why'd you burn their village up? Now they're mad at us, right? They're stronger than us. They're bigger than us. Um, we're going we're gonna to take you and turn you over to the Philistines. And Samson's like, all right do that. And so they do that. They like tie him up, you know, whatever. And, um, they, they take him to him and the ropes that they use to, uh, tie him up, like catch on fire and, and burn up. And then in verse 15, we read, and he found a fresh jaw of a donkey, a donkey, a jawbone of a donkey and put it on his hand. So he kind of made like a brass knuckles out of donkey bones and, uh, and struck a thousand men, right? Beats up a thousand men. So in this story, in three different places, we have these numbers, 300 foxes, 3,000 men, 1,000 men, right? So do you think that for us to affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, that it's necessary that we also affirm that it was exactly 300 foxes or that it was exactly 3,000 men that came to him or that it was exactly 1,000 men that Samson beat up? No, we don't need to affirm that it was exactly 300, 3,000, 1,000. Because the authors of Scripture were able to write and, and, and retell stories in the same way that we do. So they use many of the same literary devices that we do, and it still is the true Word of God. So in this case, they use summary numbers, right? Like I would summarize that there's 30 people here tonight. I have no idea if that's true. I'm not lying to you, right? I'm making a summary statement. That's a literary device that's been around obviously since the time of the judges. Um, but the Bible also uses things like hyperbole. The Bible uses similes and metaphors. We're gonna spend part of one of our sessions talking about um, parables. And, and parables aren't true stories. They're not intended to be true stories. They're made-up stories that have a point, right? So we don't have to take everything in the Bible literal to believe that everything in the Bible is true. God's not lying by inspiring an author to write something to us and that author using the language that he uses. The intent of the story is what is true. And God's affirming true things. And this story, by the way, happened. I do think we need to say that. Judges 15 happened. This isn't a made-up tale. This is something that God, through Samson, demonstrating his power in this train wreck of a man, uh, did during that age. But maybe, he, um, maybe it was 3,000, you know, five men that came to him. And it doesn't make Scripture not to be true. So we just want to be careful with our insistence upon the literal nature. So if there's a historical fact that God is affirming in Scripture, we need to affirm that historical fact. But we want to be careful on insisting that everything in the Scripture be taken, you know, literal because, well, that may not have been what the author was intending for us to hear. He may have been making a simple summary. He may have been using a metaphor. He may have been uh, using hyperbole. He may have been telling a story like Jesus so often did, right? Jesus wasn't lying when he told, when he told parables. Those parables, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, I hate to break it to you, like that didn't happen, right? Jesus told a story with a point. And um, we don't need to affirm that the story's literal to affirm that the story that Jesus is telling is true. Does that make sense to you? So you just want to be careful with that, while also saying this, from beginning to end, the entire Bible is true. God doesn't lie. He tells us true things. All right? So the Bible is authoritative. It's necessary. It's clear. It is wholly sufficient. And running parallel to all of that is this idea that it is all completely true. That when we 
understand what the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was writing and why they were writing it, that what they are saying is true and can wholly be believed because this is the word of God. Let me pray for us and then we're going to let those watching online be done. God, thank you uh, for your true word again. And uh, we celebrate that we can know that. And I pray, God, that this inspires us to declare that truth. Because here's what we recognize. Without, without it, no man can be saved. Without the truth of Scripture, no one can come to know you. So would we uh, have zeal for our evangelism, zeal for the nation, zeal for the gospel, zeal for our friends, for our family members who are lost, we pray. Uh, because we believe the Bible is true, and because it is true, it must be proclaimed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.